This is episode 94 of Beyond the Bulletin, published on July 9th, 2021. Hello and welcome to episode 94 of Beyond the Bulletin. From the University of Waterloo, I'm Brandon Sweet, editor of the Daily Bulletin. And from Media Relations, I'm Pamela Smythe. On this podcast, we go beyond the pages and pixels of the Daily Bulletin to inform you about important news and views from our community. Please keep listening for my conversation with Danielle Robichaud from the library, who uses her skills as a digital archivist to contribute to truth and reconciliation. New episodes of the podcast come out every week, and you can find our archive of past shows and helpful links on SoundCloud.com. Please recommend us to your colleagues and connections at Waterloo. Thank you for joining us as we go beyond the bulletin. So after a break over the Canada Day long weekend, we have returned. And a happy July to you, Pamela. And same to you, Brandon. How was your birthday? It passed without incident, we'll say. (laughs) It's always good when that happens. That's all I ask for. Speaking of what you asked for, did you get your barbecue? Uh, It is sort of a IOU type of thing, like the gift is coming. (laughs) 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 But it's not really a gift because we'll buy it, but then I have to install it or uh, assemble it. (laughs) Hey, was this a big birthday? About four years too late to that party, Pamela. (laughs) The story of my life. So here's what's been happening. The University of Waterloo has undergone a peaceful transfer of power from the university's sixth president, Ferdinand Hamdalaper, to its seventh president, Vivek Goel. Peaceful transfer of power. Unlike some other administrations in recent history, I guess. Hardly comparable. Well, Waterloo is a shining example in these trying times, Pamela. Uh, president Hamdalaper's term concluded on June 30th, with President Goel's term commencing on July 1st. A change in leadership, especially senior leadership, is always an interesting time for an institution. And whether it's looking back on our accomplishments or looking ahead to the future, I think there's a lot to be uh, proud of, uh, especially during Faraday's term. Yes, indeed. Yeah. He, uh, he shared some personal reflections in a blog post on June 30th that also appeared in the Daily Bulletin. And the university community recognized Faraday's decade of impact at two virtual events this spring and also an online tribute website. And on Monday, July 5th, President Goel introduced himself via a letter to the campus community and an accompanying video. We'll put the links in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. Well, there's a new sheriff in town, Pamela. Are you still talking about our new president? Or Sheriff Lobo or a Roscoe P. Coltrane? <laughs> <laughs> no, and I'm not talking about Suzanne Summers and her short-lived show, She's the Sheriff. No, no, no. What I mean is, effective July 1st, 2021, the University of Waterloo's police services is now known as Special Constable Services. Well, they are special. Well, very special. The university's Board of Governors uh, made this change official at their meeting in June of this year. And why the name change, you might ask? Well, under the Comprehensive Ontario Police Services Act of 2019... Effective January 2022, all Ontario University campus security and safety services who use the term police in their title must cease using that term. Such departments may identify themselves as special constables where the employer has been authorized by the Solicitor General to do so. And guess what? We can do that. Well, implementing the name change in July will allow the department to complete changes like updating key outdoor signage and its website soon. 
and it provides sufficient time for the department to make other necessary changes over the remainder of the year, such as changes to uniforms and repainting vehicles. And rest assured, the name may have changed, but the service will remain the same, as will phone numbers and other contact information. The on-campus extension remains 22222, and their email address is uwpolice at uwaterloo.ca. Little known fact, Alan Benz, the Director of Special Constable Services, and I share a birthday. <laughs> hey, birthday buddy, <laughs> if you're listening, and if you're not, why not? That's right. <laughs> Explain yourself. Now, here's what's coming up. From July 2021 to June 2022, the President's Anti-Racism Task Force, or PART, will be leading a monthly anti-racism book club. PART is committed to promoting education, awareness, and a deeper understanding of race, culture, and ethnicity across campus. And one way to accomplish this purpose is to engage in honest conversation. Topics include anti-Black and anti-Indigenous racism in Canada, the Indian Act, and more. Each month, there will be a live discussion of the book, which will be open to a maximum of 30 participants on a first-come, first-served basis. The first such virtual event will be held on Tuesday, July 20th at noon. The complete list of 12 recommended books can be found on the PART website, and we'll put a link in our episode show notes on SoundCloud. So, have you heard the latest? Well, a a driverless autonomous shuttle research program, but not that kind of shuttle, that will transport students and employees around campus is up and running. The Watanabus is the first of its kind at a Canadian academic institution and marks a significant milestone in a multi-year initiative to demonstrate and integrate autonomous transportation onto our campus. The shuttle was developed entirely at the University of Waterloo, led by Professor Amir Kajapur and a team of over 20 researchers in the Mechatronic Vehicle Systems Laboratory. Funding support to make Watanabus a reality has been provided by federal and provincial partners, as well as contributions from Aplanix, RoboSense AI, and Rogers. I hope it fares better than the Amphicar. (laughs) 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 The shuttle's five-stop, 2.7-kilometer journey around the Waterloo Main Campus, intersecting with the campus light rail transit stop, holds the potential to help reshape how entire communities move around their urban spaces. There's no word on whether the geese are allowed to hop on. (laughs) Yeah, well, I guess it depends on whether the geese have paid their bills. I wonder if this thing can sense a goose. Well, I would hope so. You would think that something developed at Waterloo would have uh, goose, uh, you know, <laughs> goose absorbing crumple zones or, or something along the idea, <laughs> along that range. <laughs> I think the geese need crumple zones. Oh, absolutely. Now, uh, I've only seen this thing in pictures yet because I haven't been on campus uh, when it was being demonstrated. But, you know, seeing pictures of this cute little shuttle bus, uh, it reminds me of a toy that I had back in the 80s called the uh, Trail Tracker. It was this cute little van, and uh, if you took a uh, a marker or a magic marker or a crayon and drew a line on a special play mat that you had on your table or your floor or whatever, this van would follow the line. So I'm hoping that the, wow. that the designers of this thing, their hand was very steady when they were tracing the ring road. I personally hope they drew some donuts. And now the interview. Danielle Robichaud is a digital archivist in the university's library. She is keen to use her skills to increase awareness among the public and do more to advance truth and reconciliation. Here is her conversation with Pamela. A warning, there is a discussion of events that some may find upsetting. 
Welcome, Danielle. Hi, thank you for having me. So many people were saddened, horrified, and angry when the bodies of 215 children were found at the Kamloops Indian Residential School. You took action. What did you do when you heard? Well, I initially sat with the information. Uh, I've done a lot of learning and listening uh, regarding the residential school system over the past several years. So unfortunately, my first reaction wasn't one of surprise. But shortly after that, I thought to myself, I should check the Wikipedia page. Because when news like this breaks, regardless of the nature of the story, most people are inclined to check the internet and see what they can learn about something. And Wikipedia is no different. So I visited the page for the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Uh, I was happy to note that there was a page already in existence, but unfortunately it was rather brief. Why did you care that um, there be a page with info on it? Well, I've been editing Wikipedia for about 10 years on and off, both personally and professionally. And I know from experience that regardless of how you personally or professionally feel about Wikipedia as a resource, people use it. People tend to refer to it as an entry point into a topic. Uh, If they need a quick answer to understand what something is, they're going to Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. They are in turn being told not to cite it in their academic work. (laughs) But the, the big secret is that everybody is using it. And there are studies that show that scholarly papers, for example, that are cited in Wikipedia pages in turn get cited more frequently in other scholarly work. So I know from experience that people are visiting these pages. And Mm. when something horrific like this occurs, my first thought is often to check the page and see if there's meaningful and accurate information available there for people to take in. And so there wasn't meaningful information on this page, really. So what did you do about that? I started by doing a search to determine what I could find out about the school, what was available online, both in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, but news coverage, historical information, whatever the case may be. And I started thinking about what type of information would need to be available on the page in order to make it useful for people trying to understand what the school was, but also the context in which it operated. Uh, That also consisted of looking at whether or not any survivors had spoken about their experience at the school, whether or not any Indigenous activists or thinkers had written about the the particular topic, but also the school in particular, and then kind of assessing where I could start contributing to the expansion of the page itself. What's motivating you to do that? Part of the answer for me is that I've done a lot of learning and listening to Indigenous peoples, thinkers, writers. Um, A few years ago, I took a class at Renison, Implications for Settler Canadians with regards to reconciliation. And the instructor, Kelly Larilla, in addition to being an incredible person, uh, did a really amazing job of imparting the fact that educating ourselves is only ourselves as settler Canadians is only one part of the process. The, the work really comes with translating what you've learned into action. And so for me, that looks like editing Wikipedia. When I think about really overwhelming and daunting topics like the residential school system, it's easy to feel paralyzed. I think it's common for people to ask what I can do. And for me, that answer was taking stock of what I already know how to do, like things I already know, things I'm comfortable with. And that was editing Wikipedia. 
And so I took all of this information that I was taking in and I used Wikipedia as an outlet for sharing and passing on what I've, what I've learned. So you've taken this course. It sounds like you've been thinking a lot about reconciliation. I have. Um, I, I count myself among many Canadians who grew up in a public school system that did not clearly impart accurate or relevant information about the relationship between settler Canadians and Indigenous peoples in this country. Uh, it was well into, I'd say, my mid-30s, before I really realized what it meant to live on native land. I grew up in Ottawa, Ontario, which is on unceded Algonquin territory. I did not know that until years after I had left Ottawa. I really did not understand the depth and structural nature of the racism and colonialism that exist in our country. That, that's just really resonated with me a lot in the past couple of years, coming to terms with that. I am the descendant of settler Canadians on both sides of my family. There's no getting around it. I come from people who came to Canada to settle and to colonize. And I've really tried to reflect critically on what that means for me today and what type of privilege I have earned sometimes without any reason to have it other than just how I look or how I sound. Um, and so the course at Renison really helped me put some of the bigger puzzle pieces together in terms of understanding that it's possible to carry a lot of feelings at once. It's possible to be proud of where you come from, but also really sad and devastated by the history of our country. So for me, a lot of the work that I do on Wikipedia and talking about what I've learned in regards to reconciliation is coming from a place of trying to reconcile some really heavy truths. And I hope that finding ways to put what I've learned into action can inspire and encourage other people to think about the skills they already have and how they can be put into action in meaningful ways. Hmm. You work in special collections and archives, the library, and you're doing it in your spare time too. Yeah, I know. It's sort of like one of the nerdiest things about me. I'm really fortunate working in the archives and also in the library to have access to a wealth of information resources. And part of my job as a digital archivist and an ambassador for the library is to raise the profile of information resources that we have available on campus to make personal connections between archival records and people's everyday lives. What does the process entail? The page for the Kamloops Indian Residential School. What did you do? I started uh, with editing the Kamloops page by thinking critically about the current state of the page and where it needed to be. From there, I did a search to determine what was available. And for me, when I'm working on pages related to the residential school system, I always start with the outputs of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission of Canada. They have a series of very readable and accessible reports that do an incredible job of pulling together a lot of um, historical information. I also do my best to identify Indigenous writers and thinkers who have shared their experiences or their um, advocacy work in writing so that that could also be incorporated in the page. 
To be totally honest with you, it's very much like writing a term paper or writing, writing a biographical summary, which is where I pull on my archival training to do this type of work. A lot of what we do in the archives is looking at a wealth of information and coming up with a digestible summary. And when you think about Wikipedia or the purpose of an encyclopedia, that's what people are looking for, something digestible that hits all of the key points. So when I'm starting to work on a page, whether it's creating one for the first time or contributing to something that already exists, I tend to think about what I am curious about, what the page isn't currently answering for me, and I go about trying to answer those questions. One of the issues that people have with Wikipedia is that sometimes it's not terribly reliable, and that's because anybody can edit a page pretty much on Wikipedia, I think, right? Were you the only one doing it? No, I'm actually really happy to report that there were a lot of different editors working on the page, and I completely confirm and agree that there are problems with people editing the page for less than constructive purposes, if you will. However, the vast majority of edits that happen on Wikipedia are in good faith. There are mechanisms in place to ensure that anybody who's editing for vandalism purposes, for example, that those are caught really quickly. And ultimately, when multiple people are working on a page, which is what Wikipedia invites people to do, it's, it's for anybody to edit, you get a better end result. So for example, I might focus on historical overviews because that's my particular area of interest professionally as an archivist, but other people might really be interested in the current event side of things. Some people really love copy editing. Wikipedia also really encourages consensus and discussion. So every Wikipedia page has a talk page, and that's where editors can go in and have back and forth about what they think should be happening on the page. And, you know, in turn, I make changes to other people's work that maybe they disagree with. Um, but the nature of Wikipedia is that it's open to everybody, and we're theoretically all working towards the same goal. As funding becomes available to First Nations and more communities employ this ground-penetrating radar, it's inevitable that there are going to be more of these sad discoveries. In fact, the uh, Kawasas First Nation of Saskatchewan announced recently that they found 751 unmarked graves on reserve land. Uh, that was the location of the Maryvale Indian Residential School. The Lower Kootenai Band, a member band of the Tunaka Nation, announced that remains were found at the site of the former St. Eugene's Mission School, which is near the city of Cranbrook. Are you doing anything on those? There are actually a large number of editors working on that, and I think they're doing a great job, and I didn't immediately see how I could contribute. So I've been focusing in on some of the smaller schools that are also conducting searches. I've been creating pages for schools that maybe haven't gotten any news coverage lately, but there is still a wealth of information about them. Um, and part of that is that I, I personally think that having pages for each dedicated school is critical to conveying to the general public how extensive this school system was. So I've worked on pages recently um, related to the Bertle Industrial Residential School, um, the St. Boniface School, I was working on one this morning for the Shubenacadie Residential School, which was the only school that operated in the Maritimes. So the nice thing about editing Wikipedia is that there's no right or wrong way to do it. If you have five minutes and you want to go and clean up some references, you can do that. 
if you have half an hour and you want to draft a new section of the page, you can do that as well. So I'm basically right now just trying to dedicate any of my editing energy to residential-related schools because this topic isn't going away. And if the number of graves that have been found to date continue to play out at other uh, school locations, the need for information and the interest in understanding what was going on at these schools is going to continue to grow. So I'm trying to support that. I, I just want to stress to people that you're doing this in your spare time. This is not part of your job. How much time do you spend on it? How much time I spend on editing really comes down to my personal energy and motivation. Sometimes it comes down to how much information is available and how easily I can create a page. I will be honest that sometimes I don't edit Wikipedia for months at a time. I worked a few years ago on the page for the Canadian Indian Residential School System. I worked on that page on and off for over a year. Other editors were contributing, but I took on the work of moving it through the Wikipedia review process so that it was suitable to be showcased on the Wikipedia main page. Mm. That was hard work. I had exchanges with editors that were really demoralizing. And I recognize that I'm saying that as a non-Indigenous person, but I had exchanges with editors who pushed back on the use of survivor because they claimed it was an overly emotional term. Exchanges like that were really hard and I'll be honest, took a lot out of me. So after that experience, although I'm really proud of where the page ended up, I didn't edit for probably six months to a year. If I did, it was very um, intermittent really transformative experience for me. I do not in any way want to suggest that me as a white Canadian has suffered and that my suffering has in any way compared to what has happened and continues to happen to Indigenous communities. But it was a very kind of light bulb moment for me in terms of understanding how little I understood, how intentionally things were kept from me as a Canadian in the school system, and just how debilitating constant exposure to the questioning and undermining of your lived experience must be for people. I really think I'm motivated by the fact that I know I can contribute in a meaningful way, that I can pull together resources that I have available to me as an employee at the University of Waterloo and make them in turn accessible to other people who are maybe just starting their journey in terms of understanding colonialism and understanding the residential school system, or maybe people who've been at it for years and are just continuing to expand on their knowledge very much like I am. Well, for all of that effort, in 2018, you received the James J. Tallman Award. The award is given by the Archives Association of Ontario, and it's presented when an individual has, quote, demonstrated an outstanding level of imagination and innovation in contributing to the profession, his or her institution, or the archival community, or who has pioneered any aspect of archival work. And this was specifically for your work on the Canadian Indian Residential School System page. It was an unexpected honour. A lot of the work that came out of that was associated with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission calls to action, which actually signaled out archives and their role in providing access to records related to the residential school system page. 
So I had been reflecting on that professionally in terms of what it means to work as an archivist and have the ability to provide access to information. There are also a number of calls that focus specifically on the education piece. So efforts and actions that ensure that all Canadians know about and fully understand the extent of the residential school system as well as the legacy. And so I think those, those two types of calls really culminated for me in thinking through what I know how to do and how I can direct those skills. And so for me, that looked like cleaning up the Canadian Indian Residential School System page, which at the time was quite lengthy, but it didn't have a logical flow. There was some questionable content. There were things that weren't cited. It, it just, it wasn't as great as it could be. And so over the course of the year, I worked to provide more structure in the page to impose a logical flow. I had help from other editors. I had help from other archivists. It was really a collaborative effort, but mm. ultimately all of the work that went into that was a reflection of me trying to figure out how I could hold myself accountable, how I could make meaningful change um, and put what I've been learning about the residential school system and colonialism and racism into action. So you're currently working on updating the uh, other residential school pages. And I guess, will you be monitoring those and updating them? I always have a series of pages that I keep an, an eye on. It, on Wikipedia, it's possible to do something called watching a page so that you can kind of get a, a digest of everything that's happened. There's a, a number of really dedicated editors who are working on the more current event aspects of this grave search and discovery news. So I do quite a lot of Wikipedia editing, and it's not always related to the residential school system. In fact, I try to dedicate a lot of time and energy to creating and improving pages about marginalized or equity-seeking communities. So um, I create pages about Indigenous people intentionally celebrating what they've accomplished and what they've done and what they are known for, because one thing that I've learned from Indigenous peoples teaching and sharing their knowledge with us is that it's just as important to celebrate Indigenous people when we think about reconciliation. It doesn't always have to be negative, and, and nor should it be. So I've created a page for Wanda Nanabush, who's an Anishinaabe curator and artist, uh, Marjorie Bocage, a Métis filmmaker, and closer to home, uh, Lori Campbell, who is a Cree and Métis educator. Uh, she was formerly the director of the Indigenous Student Center here on campus and has yes. since gone to the University of Regina. For me, I see that as educating myself as much as anybody else because I I really have so much to learn. And in writing and, and improving pages about Indigenous artists, thinkers, advocates, whatever the case may be, I am expanding and in some cases upending my worldview about what it means to be an Indigenous person and you know, understanding the gaps in my own knowledge about that as a Canadian. Well, I, I just think it's wonderful that you're using your skills in such a constructive, helpful way that's actually helping so many people. Because you're right, people do go to Wikipedia, or it is the first thing that comes up. So thank you for all you're doing to really educate us and make sure that we're getting accurate information and to also tell stories that, as you say, were hidden for so long. 
Well, thank you so much for having me on the show. Um, I think it's important to acknowledge that a lot of the work that I do stems directly from the really decades worth of work that Indigenous thinkers and writers have done before me. Um, and editing Wikipedia is my attempt at trying to pay some of what I've learned forward. So thank you so much for having me on today. Oh, it's been a pleasure. I just really have enjoyed talking to you. You've inspired me. Oh, that's great to hear. Thank you. Well, that about wraps it up for us this week. To ensure you don't miss an episode, please subscribe to the Beyond the Bulletin podcast wherever you get your podcasts and recommend us to your colleagues and Waterloo alumni. Stay safe, everyone, and do your part to stop the spread of COVID-19 in our community. If you want to get in touch with us, please send us an email at bulletin at As always, thanks for listening as we went Beyond the Bulletin. You know, my cat, suddenly, she's afraid of fireworks now, and she's afraid of all the thunder and lightning that we've been having, and she likes to hide on the first step to the dark basement, and I just about Mm -hmm. did a header down the stairs last week. Well, we just had a nice high-pile carpet installed on our stairs going downstairs, so if I do trip, it'll be a a softer (laughs) landing. It'll just be rug burn. Happy landings!